Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX podcast. Today, I'm here with Nadine Levin. Uh, Nadine lists on her LinkedIn page that she was a molecular biologist turned anthropologist of data turned strategic researcher, which I think is kind of a great introduction. And we're going to maybe dig into some of that, but more, maybe more importantly now, um, senior user researcher at the San Francisco Digital Services. So this is the first guest on the show who uh, squarely works for government as opposed to just sort of working with governments. Um, Previous to that at Facebook for almost five years. So uh, Nadine, thanks for coming on. Appreciate yeah, you being here, would you tell everybody how you got interested in anthropology? How I got interested in anthropology, yes. So I had, you know, throughout my childhood been interested in infectious diseases. Um, I read a lot of like infectious disease kind of caper style novels, like about, you know, the 1918 flu. My dad is a virologist, so that definitely played a role. And through that, I found myself doing an immunology program at the University of Chicago, and I did uh, lab work on bubonic plague while I was there also. It wasn't alive. It was always dead. But, you know, I was like doing the very sciencey side of immunology and disease, and I started getting a little bit more interested in the human side of disease, like kind of not just what happens in a lab, but what happens when it goes outside of a lab. And so I kind of on a whim, like it's a bit of a funny story. My parents were renting the house of the head of anthropology at UChicago in Chicago. And I decided through meeting some of his grad students that I wanted to go to Bolivia, which is where they did a lot of their field work, to hang out in a public hospital. And so I kind of just showed up at a public hospital and I, I had been doing a minor in Spanish and I uh, got myself in the door and you know I wasn't an anthropologist at the time, so I had no idea what I was doing, but I did hang out in this hospital and it was a very formative experience because it was in La Paz it was a very under-resourced hospital and medical system. You know, I saw a lot of stuff like people had tuberculosis in their bones. There's things that you just don't see in the United States. I mean, I certainly hadn't seen them because I had never been in a hospital before. And then when I came back, I was like, this is pretty cool. I'm going to like look into this a little bit. And so I took an anthropology of food course. This is my senior year of college. And it's actually the only anthropology course that I took before I became an anthropologist, which is kind of funny in and of itself. But um, through that, I had become interested in, again, like public health and the social side of health. And so I applied for a Rhodes Scholarship and got it and initially was planning to do global public health as a program, but ended up switching into medical anthropology. So it was kind of through like an interest in, yeah, the human side of immunology and health and then kind of stumbling into this thing called medical anthropology, which seemed comparable to public health, which is what I knew best. Interesting. I, I'm glad you clarified that. You know, your father was a virologist because I was gonna, I was gonna qu- question you on uh, that interest. It's a definitely a unique interest to have as a child for reading. Um, yeah, I was given like all of these, uh, you know, like medical mystery novels as a kid <laughs> to read. I love sci-fi fantasy. That's my genre. So I would like sneak into the library and read sci-fi fantasy, and then my father would give me these very. Uh, Great and scientific books, and hopefully, when he hears this podcast, he'll have a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, reading obviously, right? Like that can teach us a lot about humanity, even if we don't think we know we want to be anthropologists. So, yeah, and actually, shout out to my father during the interview for the Rhodes Scholarship. There's, I think, one question that got me it, and they were like, What's the next big disease that humanity needs to care about. And in my mind, I was like, HIV AIDS. And then I was like, no, I just read a book about 1918 flu. So I said flu, which turned out to have been, you know, prescient given the COVID-19 crisis. So anyway, yeah, Yeah. I digress. So I can see how you make your way to medical anthropology. Um, Yeah, that that's sort of clear enough, given where you were coming from and your interest. But of course, you continued on past medical anthropology. So you would you mind maybe sort of uh, sharing with us, you know, kind of the journey from there? Yeah. So 
when I got to Oxford, um, the medical anthropology program there was focused kind of, it had two very disparate areas of focus. One was on like traditional Chinese medicine and the other was on biomedical approaches to obesity um, and food. And I kind of found myself thinking like, how do I fit into all of this? And then I discovered a subset of anthropology, which I guess it's kind of a blend of anthropology and other disciplines, which no one else was really doing in the anthropology department at Oxford um, called like science and technology studies. So it was basically like critical interrogations of all of the things that, you know, go into the production of scientific knowledge and how it impacts people in the world. I'm having to remember the, th the theory now because it's been a little while. Um, but, you know, I'd been learning to critique like Western medicine, but I didn't know that there was like this whole field that was a mush of sociology and philosophy and history. And so through that, I ended up reaching out to a uh, lab in Imperial College London and doing my field work, basically looking at, I went in thinking it was a lab that did work on nutritional science. But when I got there, what I ended up seeing was they worked with a lot of biochemical equipment. Um, so mass spectrometers and um, nuclear magnetic resonance, which are, yeah, they're at the like kind of nexus between biology and chemistry. But what that ended up looking like was like lots of data analysis. So like the vast majority of the time that people were in the lab, they were thinking through data and they were putting data into a program called MATLAB. And so I really had to think like, how do I do an anthropology of data here? Like, how do I, you know, talk to people or observe them as they're doing analysis on data? And so like fast forward, I got, you know, really interested in that. I um, dug into it a little bit more, but I kind of hit a point where I was at my postdoc, my, sorry, my third postdoc at UCLA, um, which we can come back to if you want, but, you know, I was like kind of struggling to find a job in the move from the UK to the US um, and really thinking like, what, what am I doing? Where am I going from here? And um, I moved to the Bay Area with my husband who was working at NASA and I, um, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was a really rough period in my life. I'd been very close to getting two jobs, but ended up getting them. And so I happened to reconnect with a friend who did uh, UX research at Uber. And, you know, I was like experimenting with different things, but it was this field that I'd never heard of. And then I was like, I came at it from a place of skepticism, to be honest, because I was like, I've just been thinking critically about data for so much time. And here I am applying to work at tech companies that are like doing all of the things that I've been actively critiquing for a while. And so I had to kind of like take a plunge and it felt, it was really hard. Like I was, I was always like for the first six to 12 months of my job at Facebook, I was like, I'm an outsider. I'm doing an ethnography of Facebook. You know, like I hadn't really disentangled my former academic identity from my like future in UX, but yeah, I would say like, you know, the, the jump to anthropology and then the jump to UX are like a series of happy accidents that happened when I was at just kind of like junctures in my career and my interest where I tried to be a little bit open to opportunities. Um, and the, the anthropology to UX, it was like a pretty big leap because it felt like at the time there were very few anthropologists in UX research. It seemed like very dominated by psychology and HCI. And so I didn't have like... I was reading old articles from the people at Intel that are published in anthropology mm -hmm. journals. But other than that, I didn't really have like models to turn to or, or like kind of role models. Like I hadn't heard of Genevieve Bell yet, basically. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like the meandering path. And Facebook was the only place that would hire me because they had faith in PhDs. So thank you, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we'll get there in just a moment, but you said that you, you know, you had applied for two jobs that, or you you were close to getting two jobs. Were they in tech as well, or was that just sort of? One of them was a faculty position at UCL, and the other one was a faculty position at UC Davis, both in like STS departments. And I don't know if I should say this, but it was, it was like I got an email or a call from the head of the search being like, I hope to have some good news for you. And then they gave it to someone else. Hmm. So it was like very heartbreaking, but I, looking back, am thankful that it didn't happen um, because I think I'm way better off now. And so at that time, was your, you know, were you primarily interested in academic positions? 
Yeah, I think I'd been on this academic track since I was a kid that I had like never questioned. You know, like I even when I was little, I was like, I'm going to do an MD PhD. And then that became I'm going to do a PhD. Um, I'm glad I didn't do an MD. Um, I'm glad I don't think I would have been cut out for being a doctor. But um, yeah, like, you know, and to yeah, like the, the the department at Oxford that I was part of, like the faculty didn't really see themselves as being responsible for helping students explore other opportunities. Like I found in general this problem in academia and maybe it's gotten better since I've left, but, you know, there's this big, and I think you, you have it in the introduction to the podcast that you send, but there's this big disconnect between the number of students that are graduating from these programs and the number of positions that are available. And that, that was only something that I discovered as I was struggling to get a job. And you blame yourself when you're going through this. You're like, why am I not good enough? Why are there so few options? What am I going to have to sacrifice? Where like a, an alternative path could be faculty acknowledging that there's a lot of different options for people and there's a lot of different ways to contribute to the world and actually talking to people and helping them see this when they're like still in the program instead of like out of money and scrambling to have a kind of teaching position only, which, you know, doesn't come with any benefits. So... Yeah, I think it was just like on on this very singular path for a long time and then starting to slowly question like, how much am I going to have to sacrifice if I keep going in this direction? And like after postdoc number three, I was like, I, I can't, I cannot do this. <laughs> so, and as you said, you know, Facebook, um, so you end up at Facebook and they are fond of PhDs and their research roles, um, which you know is is great but of course the industry also needs more sort of entry level roles for for others as well but that's i guess another topic however in your case um you know just because you had a phd is you know while that might be desired from facebook you still need to perform you know in the interview and so you know you're talking about how you're you know you're only looking around at like intel like you know old, old articles from intel and you know and so what were you really doing to kind of skill up at that point in time? I know you said you had, you know, you had a friend who was at Uber. So was that kind of critical? Yeah, I think there are a couple things. I mean, the first thing I'll say is like, it took me a couple of tries before I landed at the job at Facebook. Like I, I think I would come in, like I applied for a job at Ford. I applied for a job at, um, oh gosh, I can't even remember the name of, they make Palantir. I applied for a job at Palantir. And especially in the one at Palantir, you could see they were like, this person is interesting. This person is smart, but she really doesn't know anything about the tech world. I remember they asked me, I they got like a call back, which was like the call after the final round where they were like, we're really unsure about you. We need to ask you a few more questions. And I remember them asking me like, tell me about the impact you've had. This is before I knew what, how to answer this question. And I was like, I taught a student who then went on and did good things. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just like have that burned into my memory. I can see why they didn't hire me retrospectively. But um, so, yeah, I like, you know, it took me a couple times and each time I would do the interview, they would ask me questions that would make me think about things differently. So you're evolving your skills through the interview process. But alongside that, I was yeah trying to talk to people who are in the industry and just get a sense for like, how do you go about structuring questions and projects? Like what, if you're presented with an idea, you know, how do you uh, think about tackling it? And I realized pretty quickly, like I would need to have some fluency, even if I hadn't done it before in both quant, quant and qual, like to be able to answer some of these questions about like, when do you do a survey versus when do you do qualitative research? And so kind of like trying to take what I already knew and fit it into a little bit more of UX frameworks, like thinking through case studies, and I also found like websites like Glassdoor really helpful. Um, I basically pulled as much information as I could about the Facebook interview process from Glassdoor. And I wrote out all those questions and I wrote out answers to them. And then I went through them with friends. So it was like just a lot of homework and tapping into existing resources. And just, you know, and again, a couple of people from Facebook who aren't there anymore met with me and also were like, reassuring me that it was a good place to work, right? Your point about Glassdoor is good. That's never come up on the podcast, but it's definitely a good recommendation. Um, you know, maybe not, um, you know, maybe it takes a little effort to mine, right, to pull all of that out, but but definitely worth it to have a sense of the questions that they're going to ask. So thanks for sharing that. Um, 
Now, when there, so, well, I want to get to the, you know, sort to the tension that you had around working with data, you know, for tech, back to that point. But before we get there, you also, you know, as you move into this space, you, you know, there is a lot to learn, of course, you know, in the tech world. I, I appreciate you were just sort of doing some, you know, upskilling ahead of time. But there's still things that you would have had to learn on the job, especially in an organization like Facebook, which, you know, would even at that point pr probably have you know, maybe a relatively mature practice compared to like a brand new startup. Mm -hmm. And so what was helpful, you know, what were you doing at that time? Was it, you know, a lot of mentorship or were you still doing a lot of self-study? I think <laughs> they hired me as a mixed methods researcher, which is kind of funny. I must have convinced them that I knew what I was talking about during the interview. Because <laughs> I, I mean, maybe from working with data in the past, I had some experience, but, you know, I like didn't really, I'd say like in general, I had a very limited uh, suite of methods at my disposal and also like a much less rigorous understanding of methods and sampling than I do now, which I actually learned on the job. So we can come back back to that if you want. But, you know, I joined a team that um, kind of just like threw me into projects. Um, so I did like a diary study, I did usability, I got to run surveys. And I basically, because of the kind of fast paced nature of Facebook, I got to do a lot of studies in my first year there and really build out like my different sets of tools that I could use. And I think just like getting my, what is it? Hands, feet wet. I always mix my metaphors. Getting my feet wet <laughs> was um, like just the most useful thing that I could have done. And that's something that I um, tell people now as well as like, just try to do projects as soon as you can. And like the best way to learn is all obviously to do and not be like told. Um, and then I think, you know, alongside of that, like Facebook, the, I had a great um, manager, Christine Gray, uh, for anyone who is thinking of joining Facebook, I think she's still there. But I had a great manager who also just like coached me. I had, I think I had to unlearn some academic um, things. I know you're probably interested in that. So yeah, I remember getting like feedback early on. I wrote up a um, lit review, you know, like we're pretty good at that in academia, we can write up literature reviews. But the feedback was like, why are you so critical? <laughs> or like, where are the recommendations? Which I feel like are common things that like, people who are fresh out of academia struggle with, you know, like taking the information and then thinking, how can this be used to help the team or how can it be used to help the product? And then also, you know, making sure to phrase it in ways that are helpful and not just like, this is bad. Um, it, so it's the soft skills that went with that. Um, and also just like learning how to interact with stakeholders. Like I didn't really learn a lot of that in academia. Like, sorry academia but it's just not a very pleasant work environment a lot of the time like people are often hostile they're not held accountable for their behavior you know it's like uh yeah i don't want to bash it too much but like i i was missing a lot of the soft skills in addition to the methods that like would really help me thrive mm -hmm. and so just again doing projects working with teams cross-functional teams so you know like engineers pms um, I had to really learn how to work with PMs is I think what I would say, because I always came at it from a, like, are you sure this is the, like, I'm, I'm a questioner. I'm like, are you sure this is the right thing? Is it possible you're leaving people behind? Like, should we really be sending more notifications to people if it ups the growth numbers? Like, is that a good user experience? And, you know, like I could have been right, but the way that I was conveying that information was not always the best. And so that was also a big learning for me was how to work with PMs. So I have two questions based on what you just said. One, you mentioned that you know, academia can be a little hostile. And so, you know, it's it's not always, um, you know, the, the way you might work together is maybe not like it is, you know, in, in, in a company like Facebook. And so I guess my question to challenge you on that would be, obviously when people when when academic researchers are in the field you are kind of collaborating and partic you know and, and working together with a lot of people however it's never really framed that way and you know in maybe in retrospect could you almost see a way to think about you know your field work that way and likewise like you know might that help people who are trying to make the transition also 
know, could we could we almost help them think about their field work mm. in a way where they're collaborating and like what could we help them learn from that so that they could reframe it for the resume? Because that's mm. when I'm helping people. Uh, that's you know reframing all that information is kind of critical, and it seems like it's a constant thing that comes up on almost every resume of how do you sort of just tweak it a bit so that it looks like you've done the w- work which you have but mm-hmm. you never talked about it that way in the past so any thoughts about like now if you know having sort of prompted you for that any thoughts about your field work and how you mm-hmm. might have actually been collaborating but never considered it yeah i did reframe a lot of that on my resume as work experience so like my field work was you know very cross functional like i was working with surgeons and people who are specialists in data and people who are researchers. And I guess the head of the lab could have been a PM. Um, And so I did, I remember like calling that out. I saw in the job rec, like cross-functional, you know, experience working with different stakeholders. And I was like, right, that definitely happened. And I also, you know, like ethnography in academia leans into participatory methods much more strongly than ethnography or research in industry, which is not the case in government. It's actually more similar to academia in that sense. And so I had already had a lot of experience like asking people for feedback and showing them things and almost like co-creating and co-designing. It was a very natural part because I was working in this lab, right? Like, so of course I was co-creating. And so that was also something that I thought about and tried to highlight on a resume. But so, yes, I think that these things are useful for thinking about how to get your foot in the door, but I would still say like the things that I learned actually while I was there are very different mm-hmm. um, because you're just in my field work. I was never thinking about like business objectives and metrics and um, design. Like these were not things that came up and they were really critical for like my role in sure. tech. To, to tie it back to an earlier point, again, about the data. So, you know, you're critiquing data in your academic life, then you get to Facebook. Um, you know, what what did you struggle with about that? And I don't mean like per se about Facebook, but just about working with data and how did you navigate like sort of, you know, tampering down those academic tendencies? I think there were a couple of things going on. I think there was my like general mistrust of tech and seeing myself still as an academic who was like, you know, trying this on and seeing if I liked it. I mean, once I left, I was not going back there. I think it's really hard to go back like the structures. I'd love to see an example of someone who goes back after they, I guess Genevieve Bell did it. And she went to like a university in Australia, but I think that's a little different. Um, Yeah. So I think there was like the, my general apprehension. And then there was also a little bit of like a culture shock happening where I was going from being like, I mean, not poor, but I felt like very not, you know, under-resourced as a person to like suddenly being around people who had all this like money and means and experience. And so like that was tied up with my thoughts around data and my academic perspective of data. And then I think what And so I continued to see myself as like a little bit of imposter um, until I did some field work in, I think it was Brazil, Brazil and Vietnam in like the kind of fall of my first year with a team that I was working with. And I remember like just having a great time. Like it was much more structured than I'd, uh, you know, you hire a vendor and it's a little bit performative. Like they take you to these places and they, um, you know, it's done in ways that are much more structured than when you would be in academia setting everything else up yourself. And I would push back on some of that. And so, you know, typically they would have taken us to like, just do in-homes, but I was like, we're studying computers. Let's go to some libraries. Let's go to some computer cafes. So I was like putting my own spin on it. And you could see my teammates were also like, whoa, this is like the coolest field work we've ever done. Cause we never thought that you could do intercepts this way. And so I think it was seeing that feeling like I was in sync with my team and I, you know, the possibilities that were offered by being an industry that had more funding and resourcing and how you could do the research that was familiar to me, but also different. Like I could hire translators. It kind of opened up a door of possibilities. But then I think my skepticism around data really changed when I, I, how do I say this? Facebook as a company runs on data and runs on numbers. And maybe I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but that 
trickles down and influences the culture of the research team, I think. So when my, my experiences were when I was there, there was probably not outwardly acknowledged, but there was more value put on like survey methodology and quantitative methodologies. I saw people's careers progressing faster in that track. Um, stakeholders understood those numbers better than they, and they kind of like, were like, oh, qualitative research over here. You can't see my hand, but it's like qualitative research over here. And I had a moment where I was like, maybe I just need to conquer this beast and make it my own. And so I kind of committed, I think this is probably around like year two, I committed to maybe year one and a half. I was like, I'm going to learn R and I'm going to learn how to do hardcore statistical analysis. And then I think that's really where like my identity properly shifted because I was able to take on something that I'd always been skeptical of and really see like what what's happening here. Like how can it, we use this as a tool that complements qualitative research to achieve similar goals? So like I was really interested in, I guess you could call it representation. I was like, let's be paying attention to groups of people who aren't always surfaced in traditional research. And that was actually easier to do with quantitative methods by showing hard numbers about how things were different for different populations. And then it fed beautifully into qualitative research. So I think it was kind of like, I wrote an epic uh, article about this. It was kind of like hijacking quantitative methods to be able to really like blend survey methodology with qualitative research and accomplish things that you could never do with just one or the other. Hmm. And that, I think that's really where I was like, okay, I, I like this. This is a much more, like more powerful and rigorous set of tools than I was ever given just as an anthropologist doing ethnography. Yeah. And not just more, maybe a powerful in its ability to, you know, find patterns and maybe explain them, but also in the business setting, as you were saying, right, there's often a bias towards that data. And so, you know, even if it helps open the door and then you sort of get to follow up with maybe the qualitative work, you know, if, if, even if it's only for that purpose, it has value within most organizations. Of course, it has more value than that. But uh, just pointing out, though, that it's, you know, there is that bias. And so anytime we can talk that language, it certainly does help. But not, you know, as as you obviously are aware, not everybody is taught those skills. So how did you learn R? There was an amazing community of, of quantitative researchers at Facebook to learn from. And I like, I think Facebook in general is an amazing place to learn. Like, I'm so glad I spent time there for all of its societal challenges. And, you know, despite me leaving, like, I would... I would not have become the person I am today if I hadn't worked there. Um, and so, yeah, there was this, like, there was a whole thread of people who were just exchanging advice on quantitative methods. If I said, hey, can you help me? Like, people would sit down and have meetings with me. They would share their code. And just being among so many smart people who are <laughs> so much better at it than I was, um, I, I was able to kind of just kind of hammer away at it. Like, I did a couple projects, and the projects evolved in complexity, and it kind of came to a head on a project that I was looking at why people open up Facebook. Why do they come to Facebook? Like, and the, the theory was like, how do the reasons that people are coming to Facebook match up to the kind of strategic business objectives? So like the, the company at the time was working on Facebook watch and Facebook marketplace and, and communities. And it was like, okay, but are people thinking about it this way yet? And why not? And uh, we had a really complicated data set with like 30,000 people. It was a global sample and uh, I ended up, it wasn't supposed to be this way, I ended up inheriting all of the data analysis for it. And kind of, it was a very complex project, but the where I learned survey weighting and all of this other stuff. And I remember presenting the results to the head of uh, Facebook app research at the time. Uh, and he was like, have you shown this to anyone else? Like, did you do this? <laughs> like, there's this like skepticism around like, aren't you an anthropologist? Because he, he had come from Intel and worked with, you know, like other famous anthropologists in tech. Um, and it was just kind of a pivotal moment for me where I was like, yes, I did this and it's been double checked and it's correct. It's <laughs> a great story. And, and so, uh, you know, I guess what would you recommend to everybody else who's interested in tech? Because, you know, maybe some people are going to have an interest in R, maybe not, but there's other skills that, you know, maybe it doesn't have to go or Python or anything like that, that mm. could still be useful. So, you know, any thoughts to, uh, to somebody starting out of maybe where they should start, especially if they're not surrounded by really brilliant people like you were at Facebook? Oh, goodness. Yeah, I mean, I have a little bit, I've definitely talked to, I'm friends with other anthropologists who are like, no, I'm not doing that. Like, I, I'm sympathetic to people who are like, 
I don't like data. I don't want to go that direction. Um, gosh, I think you have to want to do it first as a first, you have to be like genuinely interested in it and transcending that skepticism. I mean, that's like a non-trivial barrier for people like you. And then I think thinking about maybe if you're someone who's more skeptical, thinking about like what opportunities are opened for you, what doors are opened for you when you can approach a problem with a like a methodological mixture that's totally under your control. So like taking a complex problem again, like why do people come to Facebook and how does it vary among different populations? And then just like mapping that out on how you would answer it with different methods and thinking through that and just starting to like train your brain to think about how like the quantitative and qualitative approaches complement each other. I think that, I guess I'm talking a little bit about learning to think in a particular way versus like skilling up, you know, there's an infinite number of ways that you can learn. There's online courses, there's, um, yeah, you could, you know, you could learn from people, but I think it's, I'm more interested in like the preparation work or the mental shifts that need to happen in order for you to like be open to that and also get value out of that. Cause like I, before I came to Facebook, I'd taken like a statistical course online, you know, one of those ones that's not actually a course. It's just telling you to like do a series of things. And it was completely useless. Like I forgot all of it because I didn't really want to be doing it and it had no application because I didn't have any data to play with. And so it was so much more useful and valuable and interesting to me once I was actually in a place where I could, like, it was interesting to me and it was actually useful for addressing problems. And was there anything else besides data skills that you really dug into um, to complement your existing skills? I th okay, there's two two things. The first is I think, like, maybe my PhD experience is not uh, representative of other people's PhD experiences, but I don't think I had the most rigorous methods training, um, you know, within ethnography, sure. But outside of ethnography, like, I don't know that I, I could have really said like, why ethnography for this problem and not other qualitative methods or like, why are you sampling these people? Are there any other approaches? And so I, I really like, especially at a place like Facebook where there's so many different subpopulations like using the, the platform and where you can, you have like infinite numbers of choices when you, you know, sample people. I got really interested in beefing up my methods and how I think about qualitative sampling. And I think like it's a underappreciated and underthought about area in industry. I'm not going to talk about academia because I don't know what's going on there, but like, basically, it shapes so much of what you find later in the process, like who you end up talking to. And I find there's like generally a lot of, uh, I would say qualculation is one of my favorite terms I stole from some article, but it's like the mesh, the mushing of qualitative methods and ideas and statistical ideas that and where you end up with things like 50% female and 50% male sample. And you're like, why, what is that helping you learn? Like, is that actually important to the question at hand? And so I think that's one of the things that I has been really like powerful for me in, in um, becoming more precise and also just becoming like more of an expert in my own field is thinking about that. And then I think the other thing that I have spent a lot of time learning is just like, <laughs> again, de academic you know, D, however you're saying that, uh, moving away from academic tendencies around writing and presentation was another big one. So learning how to communicate things in decks, like as annoying as it might sound, it is such a skill and it's so helpful. Um, you know, you can do the most beautiful research, but if you can't talk about it in a way that's simple or like relevant to your stakeholders, you're never going to go anywhere. Like you're not going to have impact. You're not going to like you know, move up in your career. So like really learning how to, you know, like distill complex problem spaces into like, here's a four phase project and this is the business rationale behind it. And this is what we're going to learn from people. And here's, you know, like the why behind it, here's the recommendations that came out of it. Like I, you know, taking a lot of care and time in simplifying it um, and breaking it down into chunks and then also presenting it in ways that are like visually appealing, I think is very, very helpful. And I think, again, we are not taught how to do that in academia. I remember giving a job, like the first job talk I gave back in academia was just slides with pictures because I had no idea what I was doing. 
it was such a bad presentation retrospectively. Like it was like me reading a paper and then presenting pictures. Like it's not, it's not very effective. So like acknowledging that and then, you know, getting better at it and, and training yourself. Yeah. Agreed. Now in that uh, answer, you again mentioned the word impact and you have the article from Epic in 2019, 10 things you should know about moving from academia to industry, which I'll link to in the show notes. But one of them that, you know, jumped out at me was impact means change. And, you know, so you want to just maybe elaborate on that point? Yeah. So I'll tell you like the origin of thinking about that and impact in that way. So I kind of, I hit a point, um, like a year, probably two years in where I had established myself at Facebook as a, like, you know, I don't know, skilled or qualified mixed methods researcher and who I could work with product, you know, like I developed all these skills that I'm talking about and I had an opportunity to move into more of a strategic space. So what that means is like, not my day-to-day was not just working directly with product teams. It was like sitting a layer above product teams and working at the org level and thinking about, more strategic business problems. Like the, why do people come to Facebook uh, type of question is not, no one team owns that answer or that impact. And so it's like, sorry, I use the word impact. No one team owns that space. Um, and so I, I was moving into this more strategic space, but then cause I was doing work at a, in a different way that was kind of not the same as all of my other colleagues. I was like, how do I talk about this in my performance review. I'm like, I know I'm doing good work, but like, how do you articulate this? How am I going to get credit for it? And I worked a lot with my manager to, to think about this. Like, you know, we're taught a lot in the beginnings of our UX training, like impact is X percent more users are on the platform or more time, or it's like very like tactical and boxed understandings of impact. But the working at the, on these different projects, I started thinking like impact is giving other researchers tools to do like work in certain areas or coming up with frameworks and thought pieces that shape how company executives think about things. Like it really was broadening out um, my understanding of what I was doing. Cause I was clearly like inspiring other people to think about things differently. It was just, how do you talk about that? Mm-hmm. And so that's where I kind of really started emphasizing like impact is change because I don't want it to just be, you have to have these very tactical impacts on product. I want people to also recognize like it encompasses organizational change. It encompasses mentorship. It encompasses like, you know, inspiring people to think about things differently over the long term. Um, so th- I think you have to get to a place where you're confident in your abilities to be able to really lean into that at the organizational level, like changing organizational culture is no joke. And, you know, I still ne- don't really understand how to do it well enough. Um, but yeah, kind of like pushing myself to really think about all of the different ways that you can have impact. Got it. So speaking of impact, you've now moved to GovTech, right? Which is a great place for this kind of work, you know, and at a, at a large scale. And so with the San Francisco digital services, can you tell us a little bit about maybe, you know, what was your interest in jumping into that space and tell us a little bit about the role? Yeah. So in the last few years of being at Facebook, I became, I mean, a lot of what I had done was doing, was projects on, I guess you could say vulnerable or marginalized or underrepresented populations. I did projects on how older adults use Facebook. I did projects on um, how people with low digital literacy struggle to use Facebook, projects on race. And there was always that like undercurrent. And I, I think I was frustrated over time and I like, I don't blame companies for this, but I was frustrated with how attention to these kinds of groups was always secondary. They're not, they were not at the, even though I was being given space to do these projects, like those are not core groups from a business model perspective. Like they're not, well, older adults are, but that's another story. They're not necessarily groups who are like using the platform as much as they could be. Again, another you could argue that that's inaccurate about different races and ethnicities in the United States, but they're not at the forefront of, of the business objective. And so even though there's space being given to work on these problems that more underrepresented groups face, it's always like a side hustle or it's always something that you have to be like screaming at people to pay attention to. 
and I, I just was kind of feeling like tired of, of that. And, um, I knew, and I was okay with this. I was like, my career is not going to progress anymore. I've kind of like hit a wall with what I can do with, with these groups. And so I was kind of like looking around at what, what else might be available. And I stumble and I don't remember exactly how it might've been a job ad on Epic for, uh, maybe this role or maybe a role at code for America. I stumbled into the space of just seeing a job, an ad for research in the civic space. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And it was, this was around the time of the pandemic when I was also doing a lot of personal work beginning of the pandemic. I mean, when I was doing a lot of personal work on like what it means to be a citizen who's white when there are black lives matter protests going on. Like I was really thinking a lot about power and uh, representation. And I started like volunteering um, for mutual aid. And so it was kind of like this confluence of things where I saw this field that foregrounded equity, which, you know, it's not, it's a term I would use now to say like attention and centering of the experiences of all people, regardless of their ability. Um, If foregrounded equity, it it matched like my feeling like I needed to be engaging more with like the civic world. You know, I was like a privileged tech worker sitting in my little like San Francisco bunker being paid really well and almost like coddled while, while other people in the country were really struggling. And I was like, I have to be able to help with this. And so um, that's, and I was surprised that the government hires researchers. <laughs> and I, I will say like, I also found um, a few podcasts by Sid Harrell, who is not an anthropologist, but she, you know, come, she's a researcher among other things. And she had a couple like really great podcasts that were, just very open about like what the experience of working in government's like. And she had also, I think, come from industry at one point. So that was also really helpful. I recommend to anyone who's interested in civic tech to look up podcasts where she's featured because it was just super helpful. Great. And so what kind, can you talk about the type of projects you're working on? My current role, I work in a team called Digital Services, which is, I'm going to have to discuss, describe the San Francisco government. Hold on. Let me take five hours. Um, So basically they're like the San Francisco government. And so all of what I'm saying is like specific to San Francisco and not necessarily representative of wider tech um, because San Francisco is its own beast. But San Francisco government is very decentralized. So there's something like 900 services and I don't know, 100 different departments and only like 20% of those things are digitized. Um, And so I'm on a team called Digital Services that kind of, it's a central team that partners with other teams throughout the city to try to digitize things. And so we have like, you know, we're working on bringing departments to sf.gov, which is a central platform to provide consistency to people. So like, if you want to go get a building permit, you have to go through all of these different digital infrastructures that don't talk to each other. And, you know, like the lack of consistency and interoperability creates problems for a user and so, or a person or a constituent. User is not really the, the best word here. I'm, again, getting rid of bad habits. But so we have a lot of focus on, you know, platforms and SF.gov, building out that website, which you can go check out. It's great. And then we also partner with the permit center and the permitting process. And then also um, the affordable housing team at a, an acronym called MOCD, which I'm not going to, don't ask, I don't know exactly what it stands for. Um, it's a lot of acronyms. So the pro, because I'm the only researcher on the team, which is a pretty big shift from where I came from, where there were a thousand researchers at Facebook, I am responsible for not just specific projects, but also setting up the research practice of the team. So like, how do we set up? And I would say like, what's also different has been a big shift to me. And I was highly skeptical of it at first, but now I'm like more on board was um, there's an expectation of research being democratized in government. It's like, there's not enough resources to have research cordoned off by the research professionals. So we need to like democratize the ability and the knowledge. I think there's a lot of problems with that and i think there's a lot of good out of it that's like a whole nother podcast um but you know a lot so then a lot of what i take on is setting up the rest of the team who are not necessarily researchers to empower them to do research so one project i'm so just going back to your initial question i do remember it one like 
you know, big project that I'm working on right now that's been going on for a while is helping the city of San Francisco to develop a standardized set of questions around race and ethnicity. So like basically in order to measure equity in the city, you need to have one set of questions that will be used everywhere. And so I've been partnering with the um, Office of Racial Equity, ORE, to um, do a bunch of qualitative interviews, not ethnography, just qualitative interviews with people of different races and ethnicities to understand their perception of the questions that we're asking and how we're asking them. So that's one like more standard fit UX thing. But then, another, again, speaking to the practice, like another thing I'm doing is I'm running an eight-week course for my teammates teaching them research basics that starts with how, when to do and not to do research. And then also how do you find the right question and the right method when you have like a nebulous topic. So I say that just to illustrate like the variety of different things that I do in my day and also how, you know, some of it is actual research practice and method. And some of it is thinking about this more strategically and thinking about how to get the organization to think about it differently. It's interesting. And so what do you see as the major difference between government and, you know, and private? And I I know you only have, you know, the one experience on both sides, but from a researcher perspective, anything jump out at you that maybe somebody who's thinking about civic tech should be aware of? There are a lot of differences and a lot of similarities. So like my day to day and the kinds of things I do are really similar, like the methods that I use, the tools that I use, um, like tools, meaning like usertesting.com the way I have to interact with stakeholders. But I think there's a couple big differences. The first is, again, this might be a San Francisco thing, but the absolute lack of measurement. <laughs> like there's a um, no metrics in my day, which is like both freeing and frustrating. And also no surveys or really kind of like, there is a data team, but like it's a very different type of data science than I'm used to. And so... What that means is like, there's a, you know, while I was frustrated at Facebook about the absolute, like, you know, if it, if the metric moved, that's it. Or if it didn't move, that's it. Like, you don't really have room to, you know, that's a particular type of institutional culture here. It's like, there's no metrics. So let's just make, you know, everyone who's in like a different position of power is making different decisions. And, um, you know, it's like the first time in my life where I was like, ah, I really miss numbers, (laughs) which is funny. Um, so the, the pros and cons of not having numbers is like a, a one big difference. Another, I think, is the lack of like resourcing and infrastructure around recruitment for participants. So, um, you know, as quality of researchers, like, again, who we talk to is extremely important for structuring the kind of work that we can do. And when I was at Facebook, and this is probably similar for a lot of other companies, there's a whole like recruiting team or you hire a vendor to do these things for you. And it's like, once you pull back the curtain of all of that, what is left and what does that mean for my day to day? And so, um, you know, we, we do have like research ops support, but that doesn't solve the issue of how challenging it is to reach the right people. Because what I've found in the civic world is like, monetary incentives are often not enough to convince people to participate in. And sometimes they're impossible for other, for people to give out depending on like which environment you're working in. But there's so much like, there's so many feelings around government that it's, it adds this extra layer of like uncertainty and confusion. So like I did not anticipate when I left Facebook that because Facebook is hated by many people, but the San Francisco government seems to be hated by more people. (laughs) I'm like, wow, they actually like it when I say I used to work at Facebook. That's odd. Um, But yeah, this recruitment, you know, so my day-to-day of recruiting is like much more hands-on and it involves reaching out to community organizations, which like I definitely am just in the beginning phases of this. I'm not an expert by any means. Very complicated. Um, it means doing a lot more hacky things like going to the library or going to the DMV. And so while I had, it gets like a much more of a compromise between methodological rigor and just like, what can you get done? So maybe it's a little bit more like what happens in a startup environment. And then I also mentioned like the democratization of research is also a very big change. So I think those are like three big differences. Thanks. And so last question, um, I'm curious to know, you know, what are you learning, say, from democratizing the research, you know, working maybe with sort of 
kind of like non-researchers traditionally are, or what are you learning from sort of building a team, right? Like sort of in this role of, of managing this process, what's new to you and what could you share that's of value? Um, yeah, I mean, I think with the democratization of research, so like when I came in and again, at Facebook, research is like the domain of the research team. When I was there, it was becoming much more like there was a big focus on rigor and in you know, when your research gets leaked, you want to make sure that it's representative of the actual problems that the company is engaging with, and you don't want to have methodological issues coming up. Um, and so that I came at like this democratization of research thing as like, how could people who are not experts possibly do this? Like, it's wrong. And then I started, you know, I, but I was like, okay, this is a reality. Like, you know, it's not going to change. And so I think where I'm at now and what I've been learning is like this whole idea of democratizing research actually is talking about like the power dynamics of knowledge. And it's actually, I think, a little bit more important to think about it as like not democratizing it among your stakeholders, but also democratizing it among participants. So like how does the dynamic shift between the interviewer and the interviewee if you're thinking about like everyone being part of this research process and I think I really struggle with it because um there's all this professional knowledge and know-how that I bring to like the way that I do my work but then at the same time like you want to foreground the experiences of of the people that you're speaking to and especially from an equity perspective you're talking to communities who have not had a voice who have not had a say in how the city do thing does things and so I think I'm I'm just learning I don't have the answers and I'm just learning a lot about how what it what all is encapsulated in this idea of democratization and and what is the right way to disrupt power dynamics while still maintaining rigor in research. I think it's a slippery slope and there's a lot of people who have like very strong, um, very like extreme ideas about you know, like the researcher is just there to listen to the participant and the participant can direct things. And I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that, but then I kind of see where they're coming from. So I just think there's a lot of opportunity to, to just sit with it and be uncomfortable with it and say like, what am I learning? How is this pushing back on some of the things that I learned when I was in, you know, the ivory tower of research and the ivory tower of academia? Cool. Sorry, it's not a perfect answer. No, no, it's very good. And, uh, uh, it, you know, I think it's probably a relatively good way to wrap up and, you know, hopefully one day there'll be something else that you write that we can check out that, that digs into some of that. But, uh, anything you want to plug, you know, anything you want people to know about? Yes. Um, we're going to be hiring another researcher on our team so that it takes a while to get hired for the San Francisco government, but that job, uh, will go up in the next few months and, uh, you should, you know, anticipate joining our team if you're interested in like probably the fall. Um, I think I'm also on a panel at uh, UXPA in San Diego uh, that's talking a little bit about diversity and recruitment. Um, and um, yeah, I think those are the two main things that, and oh, sorry, I'm also interested in connecting with other people who are civic tech researchers um, I think we encounter a lot of shared problems, but there's not a, a clear space to me yet to connect with other people. And so I, I'm hoping eventually I'll get to a point where I have some time to kind of develop and nurture that community so we can all help each other a little bit more. Cool. Sounds good. Well, um, Nadine, thanks for coming on. It was great to hear about your story. Uh, thanks for sharing all that with everybody and um, hope to see you in the future. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotous.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.